Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on Psalm 51, and it dealt with the biblical reality of genuine repentance and confession. Now, what I neglected to tell you then, and I actually had the plan to do it today, was that I wanted to preach another sermon because that sermon I preached would render me a person who is unwelcome in certain circles of the evangelical world. The reason for that is relatively simple. In their mind's eye, I neglected to touch on incredibly important details between the story of David and Bathsheba. And so what I wanted to do for you today is is actually rather different than what we normally do. What I'm going to do is simply take a small break from the Psalms to deal with the topic. But there's a reason for it. Matt and I were talking after that last sermon, and one of the things that came up as we were discussing it is simply that Today, there is a broader movement in the church that takes passages like the one we heard and other passages of Scripture and applies them in a way that we believe to be very dangerous. We thought it might be helpful to simply devote a sermon to this issue because whether or not you all recognize that you're embroiled in a controversy right now, you're embroiled in a war. One way it plays out is with the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, perhaps you're not even aware of this issue but you've seen it in action over the last several years. You've seen reputations ruined. You've seen careers ended. You've seen lives upended all because of it. And this battle is not something that I would say is relegated to the confines of a few passages here and there. Really, it is a lens in which they look at the entirety of the scriptures. It's not an ordinary battle, and the reason for that is because it's a battle of words. You saw that battle play out within the riots of Kenosha. Buildings were literally reduced to rubble over the meaning of a word, justice. You see it with the claim that love is love. You see it in action with things like the Me Too movement or things like structural racism, if you will, and even the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade where the common thread ties them all together. The theme of our day is that certain people are purely victims. They are victims of institutional power dynamics But it's important to know that this theme is not simply isolated to the culture war. It has seeped into the church, and various seminary professors teach it, organizations like the Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and many influential Christian thought leaders who would be commonly called Big Eva, or Big Evangelicalism. It's at the heart of a massive point of controversy in the SBC right now over whether or not women can be pastors, even though the text explicitly forbids it. But it also plays out in more subtle ways, like whether or not a man should be the head of his household, what traditional gender roles are, or how you quote-unquote must love your neighbor, and more. What I want to do for you today is show you that these things don't happen in a vacuum. There's a reason why it all comes up, but it also actually affects you in a very real and meaningful way. It will affect your children, and it will affect the future of this church. The point I'm trying to make today is a simple one. This is an incredibly serious problem. All it takes for this church to fade into the background or the broader stream of subtle and manipulative lies is a generation that grows up and becomes complacent against the war of the lies of this age. Think of it even in light of the sermon Matt just preached on a theology of martyrdom. All it takes, beloved, is for the pressure to be applied in just those right areas. And what we do with that will be conceded over the battle of the truth. Once the right non-negotiable doctrine is removed from the house of cards, it will inevitably all fall down. And you have many that tell you that this reality is simply not true, that you can ditch this and that and all the Christian faith remains intact, but recognize that persecution simply rarely starts at a forced denial of Jesus Christ as Lord. Throughout the history of the church, there have been all sorts of different doctrines that have been under attack, and it is because Satan is far more subtle than this, 
because the devil truly is in the details. The battle being waged right now is over the truth of the word. Is it true? The question everyone is asking is if the Bible truly speaks with authority and with clarity to the issues of our day. Well, how you answer that question actually makes all the difference in the world. Believe it or not, again, it plays out in passages like our own with the story of David and Bathsheba. These passages have been plainly understood for millennia, but there is a claim today, and it is a very popular one, by the way, that David raped Bathsheba. Now, many of you might be wondering, why does this actually matter? How does this change anything? You know that David would be forgiven of this, just like he was forgiven of adultery, if that's what really happened in the text. But you'd be right to answer the question that way, but you're asking the wrong question. The question is not that. The right question is, what does the text simply say? And why does that actually matter? And that's at the heart of what I'm going to call the problem today. So what I'm going to first do is simply take a look at what this quote-unquote problem within the church is. Again, it's that David raped Bathsheba. Now, there are a couple of different ways that people arrive at this. The first one is simply that power dynamics were at play. It's a term that's used within a broader field of psychology and sociology. And if you're unfamiliar with what that term means, all it refers to is that A certain people or people group or person has power and influence over others, and they can change things to produce a desired outcome. Now, power dynamics are not always seen as a bad thing, right? For example, you have parents, and they have a level of power and authority over their children. Children need help, and that's generally seen as a good thing. They need guidance. They need care. But in recent years, this idea of power dynamics has actually played out in a rather radical way because the idea is that there are people who are more powerful and influential and they abuse that power and influence. Now, I think on the surface, most of you can agree with that, right? I mean, we have examples where we see people abuse their power all the time. The example I can think of right off the top of my head is very simply with all that happened with the pandemic. We saw governors abuse their power, but we also saw churches abuse their power. Some of you even left your churches because of this reality, where you saw elders take under their realm of authority things that were not theirs to take. They were trying to enforce things they had no legitimate authority as an elder or a pastor to enforce. But this idea of power dynamics goes off the rails very, very quickly simply because it is not wedded with the Bible. In other words, the Bible has no saying whatsoever within this field of study. Again, it's important to note that it is a sociological or or psychologized understanding of these things, meaning that it relies on the current understanding of the sciences of so-called power abuse, and those things are always shifting. Now, key factors are used to support this idea. Those key factors are things like race, money, gender, sexual orientation, age, and much, much more. And so you can start to see where some of those categories might bleed over into your favorite social issues of today, right? This is why you have kids that can get reconstructive surgery without the knowledge of their parents. This is all why. And right there, I know some of you are starting to bristle, but you need to hang with me for a second because this is a framework that people are understanding and applying to the text of Scripture. This is how they're approaching the Bible, in other words. In our example today with David and Bathsheba, you have all sorts of different organizations, again, like the Gospel Coalition or Christianity Today, people like Russell Moore, Rachel Den Hollander, and others, even like John Piper, who I have a very fond uh, sense for, that understand the text through these modern categories. There's a spectrum on which they fall, and it's important for us to understand that because some of their conclusions will be radically different, but the root of it is still the same. The root issue is still the same. So what's the root issue? Well, the Bible, ultimately, is not the final authority for them on this. And that's what creates foundational issues. It has certain implications, certain logical conclusions that must be embraced once you actually tease this thing out. Now, I would argue that it actually leads you to embrace the more radical conclusions that you will hear of today. Again, to put it quite simply, the argument 
is that David raped Bathsheba. And the reason we know this is simple. He was in an incredibly powerful and influential position. And he used his power to abuse her. I want you to listen to a quote. This man named Richard Davison, who is used as an authority for all the major players here, and he's reading or writing or quoted in a Gospel Coalition article, and he says, just as intercourse between an adult and a minor, even a consenting minor, is today termed as statutory rape, so the intercourse between David and Bathsheba, even if she acquiesced under the psychological pressure of this one in power over her, is understood in biblical law and so presented in this narrative to be a case of rape. What today we call power rape. And the victimizer, not the victim, is held accountable. Notice there's several key assumptions that this man makes here. Well, for one, he begins the idea or begins by defining this idea as a one-to-one comparison to how we understand statutory rape today. Since we understand that as an adult would have power and influence over a minor, he says that even if a minor agrees to that, right, we classify that as rape, and we do. But then he takes this and applies it to the idea of David and Bathsheba, and he says that even if Bathsheba agreed to this, it is still rape. Secondly, he makes a claim that biblical law also defines these things this way, but notice there's no citation. Third, he makes a claim that even if Bathsheba agreed to the adultery, it's David that's held accountable, not her. In other words, she is not guilty of any sin or any violation of the law, and she's just a victim of power dynamics. Really pay attention to what's being claimed there. Under the concept of power dynamics, it's not just that David was king, but understand that Bathsheba is seen as a woman. She is one who already has less power than a man simply because of her being a woman. She's also likely poor, and so that's another intersection of oppression, if you will, that she automatically falls under. Do you see or start to see what some of the problem is here or how this is going to play out? You can already front load these assumptions into the text, and what happens is you automatically and radically change it to be something it isn't. But that's one way they arrive at this conclusion. The second way that they arrive at the conclusion is that they argue from the narrative of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 that the prophet Nathan and even the narrative gives every indication that David raped her. And so that's why I want you to open to those texts. It's actually important that we look at them because I want you to see how they get these conclusions or how they arrive at these conclusions. So first in 2 Samuel 11 verses 2 through 5, He writes, now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he appeared, or he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now, John Piper makes a point from this that she wasn't invited. She wasn't wooed. She wasn't lured even, but that he took her. And that's what the text says, right? More than this, he claims that David sent armed men to take her by force and to bring him bring her back to him. And then from this point, he moves to the parable and says that the same is revealed there. The point that he makes from this is that we can look at the word take and we can look at the understanding that men came. They captivated her or rather kidnapped her, took her and David raped her. The next one he leads to is 2 Samuel 12. This is the parable of Nathan. So I want you to take a look at this with me as well. Verses one through four. Notice what the text says here. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich had had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. 
and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or from his herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So notice what's said here. But then listen to this quote again by Piper. He says, Nathan really recreated the adultery in the categories of theft and killing. You see how he's getting that from the text here. He says, not Uriah's killing, that's an added evil, but as it were, Bathsheba's killing, represented by the little, little helpless pet lamb, being killed and served up as a meal. So I would say for these two reasons, we are not exaggerating to use the word rape for David's abuse of his power in the indulgence of his sinful lust in the way that he took her. So notice from his two arguments, there's a flow here. First, Piper says that the word take means that David forced Bathsheba. In other words, he kidnapped her. Second, he implies that when David lay with Bathsheba, that the word implies rape as well. A third, he says that from the parable of Nathan, it expressly teaches that Bathsheba is seen as a victim of David's power abuse. Same essential thing that the other man said, power rape, right? Well, Rachel Den Hollander makes a very similar claim. She says, David didn't fornicate, David raped. And if you understand the power dynamics and you understand the Hebrew and you look at the Levitical examples and discussion of rape and you understand what Nathan is saying in his parable, it is abundantly clear from the text that David raped. But here's where it gets really interesting. And I want you to really, really pay attention to this. She makes a conclusion that if you understand the point of this text differently, you actually harm abuse victims. Well, she continues, more often than not, pastors take passages like that, meaning the story of David and Bathsheba, and they minimize and downplay or completely twist what happened. And they apply it even to survivors. And they twist what happened with that abuse, and it is devastating. That is one of the reasons that survivors feel so much betrayal from the church. Because so many passages of scripture like this, even the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene, the Levitical command that you must cry out if you're abused, the commands related to evidence, we handle them so sloppily. We do not treat them with exegetical care, and we make heinous mistakes when we do that that are crushing to survivors. And when survivors look at that and they say, you didn't even handle Scripture properly, the sense of betrayal is deep and founded. And so the very first thing we need to do is handle our Scripture properly, handle our doctrine properly. Well, she's right, by the way, with that last sentence. But I want you to see how that the argument is literally based on what they view as a proper understanding of the text. In other words, they're using the Bible here. It's abundantly clear to them that David raped Bathsheba, and if you don't see it that way, you're guilty. You downplay, you minimize, or you completely twist the scriptures, but not only that, you actually harm victims of assault. Every bit of that is intentional. But secondly, you cause further harm to abuse survivors simply by applying biblical passages like these to the situation at hand. But this is not a problem simply for pastors and teachers. If any one of you hold the same position, meaning that you apply these passages to the circumstances of allegations of assault, and you disagree with their conclusion or her conclusion in particular, you are also guilty. You're guilty of butchering the text, but you're guilty of perpetuating harm to abuse survivors. I want you to understand that's what's really being said here. If you don't approach the allegations of assault through the lens of power dynamics, and if you don't approach the scriptures through the lens of power dynamics, ultimately, you're guilty. That's not even the biggest problem, though. Now, many of you, I'm sure, are just, you're angry at hearing this. But my concern is that you know why you're angry. Because I know that in our internet outrage machine that is today, it's very easy to simply be angry over things without really understanding the, the real thing underneath it. 
the why is utterly crucial because it's ultimately not just an issue about assault. It's not just an issue about the narrative of David and Bathsheba. This is a thing that's time or popped up time and time again with various other movements throughout all of history. Because what's being assaulted is the authority and inspiration of the scriptures. And again, there's a spectrum on which these people fall, so understand that. But the reality underneath it all is the question is, what did God say? With the Enlightenment period, the question was asked, did God really say that the Bible is the very word of God, that the supernatural is legitimate? With the emergent church, the question was asked, did God really say there were people within the church that should hold certain authority over its members? With the egalitarian movement, the question was asked, did God truly say that pastors should be men? With the social justice movement, which you are all very familiar with this day, the question is being asked now, has God truly said that the gospel is the only solution to ethnic division? And there will be another movement after the social justice movement, and another one after that, and another one after that, and another one after that. And so my point is relatively simple. All of them will ask the question, has God said? And your own answer to that question will reveal truthfully what it is you really believe about the word of God, but it's more than what you believe, beloved. It will actually reveal whether or not you will submit yourself to the Bible. And that plays out in your entire life. But the problem I want you to see is that there is an assault on the authority of Scripture here, the clarity of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. That's the issue in all of this. It plays out in a very subtle and manipulative way, but it has massive implications in how we understand things like sin and ultimately even the gospel. This is why we felt this was necessary to even address. Now, if you recall, every major player uses a term or terms similar to power dynamics. That term, by the way, has a freight load of meaning that's just jam-packed into it that I covered a little bit there, but ultimately, this is the grid that they overlay on the scriptures, meaning this is where you must first approach the issue from. They don't go to the text first. Each of them went to this modern psychological and sociological understanding of power dynamics, and then they approach the scriptures. That order sets you up for either failure or success, by the way. Again, the idea is that David abused his power. He did so because we can clearly see it from the text, but through this lens of power dynamics. Now, before you get your hackles up, there is an element, and I do mean just an element of truthfulness to this. If you heard my sermon on Esther, right, she was essentially forced to go into the brothel of the king. To refuse him literally meant death for her. It meant the death of everyone she loved, and he had many, many, many many other women at his disposal, and so he did this time and time again. This was not uncommon for kings to do, by the way. Now, she could have refused, but again, that would likely mean her own death, but it also, in the story of Esther, could mean simply the destruction of Israel as a whole. None of that makes what she did right, but it does make things more complicated. Right? It's, it's easy for us to judge it from the pew where we've never had to make a decision like this. But the reality is that people can abuse power. This was not uncommon for cultures to do at large. There was an old ancient tradition called prima nocta. Now, I don't know if many of you are familiar with it, but it means the right of the first night. And all that simply means is that a king had the power to take a woman, even a virgin, on her wedding night and abuse her. To refuse the king meant death. And it's not like anybody else is going to stand up for you because that meant their death as well. You don't just oppose the king. There is a pressure that a king can exert simply by virtue of his role. Few will dare to oppose him. Think of a guy like Hitler or Kim Jong-il. You have all, all these different power players. If you literally say a word against him, if you don't smile in the right way, you're dead. That's just the reality. And so the reality is that David was in a very powerful position. He certainly abused his power to have Bathsheba and to have his way with her. Right? He sends people under his authority, and you can see this in 2 Samuel 11, but he sends people under his authority to go to her, to bring Uriah back home, and even to send Uriah to his own death. 
All of that, beloved, is an abuse of power. He was not at liberty to violate the law of God. He was not at liberty to violate his neighbor's wife and to violate his neighbor, and yet he still did so. But none of that answers the question of did he actually rape her? Right? Does the text say that? And that's the crux of the issue. That's what we have to be able to do is simply look at the Bible and say, what does it actually say here? Believe it or not, the Bible actually clearly defines rape. It clearly speaks, or speaks to this, especially in the case of a married woman. And so if you had your finger here, please go to Deuteronomy 22. If you can't make yourself or make your way there quickly enough, that's okay. Just listen. But keep your finger in 2 Samuel 11. So Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 through 27. Moses writes, If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. Thus shall you purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. So notice just a few things about what this text simply states. First, he says, if a man and woman are caught in the act of adultery and she has not cried out in any way, shape, or form, they both deserve death. That's just what the law says, right? The reason in verse 24 is that the man violated his neighbor's wife and the woman did not cry out. In other words, he's saying very, very clearly that in that case, it would not be construed as rape. Secondly, notice the word but in verse 25. It's actually very important because it shows a contrast between what qualifies as rape and what does not. If the man forces her and lays with her and she cries out when she is found, it is rape. Only the man must be killed. Only the man. There is no sin in her. But if she is not forced and she does not cry out and when she is found, what does it say? It's not rape. That's just simply what the law says. Now compare that to the argument that was made by those who would say Bathsheba was raped. There's a startlingly big difference there, isn't there? There is simply nothing in the text of 2 Samuel 11 that even suggests that she was forced. In fact, the narrative simply tells us that he lay with her and the scriptures, literally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not use the word rape. And the scriptures have no issue with using that word, by the way. If you still have your finger in 2 Samuel 11, flip over just a couple of pages to 2 Samuel 13. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my place here for a second. This is just a story of Amnon and Tamar, and it literally tells us that he violated her, right? So starting at verse 12, he comes in, he's playing or pretending to be sick, and she, he says, come lay with me, my sister. She says, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, how could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her, and since he was stronger than her, she, he violated her and lay with her. I mean, it just very plainly states that reality, and this is just a page or two over from our story with David and Bathsheba. However, if you apply the case of power dynamics to David, you can, quote-unquote, clearly see the point I'm driving towards with this is that the narrative does not state what they say it states. Rather than simply reading and accepting it at face value, even when there's an example, literally two pages over, you have to force this understanding 
into the biblical text. What qualifies as rape in their minds is that David abused, abused his power, even though the text never says that. In other words, you have to accept what Richard Davidson said, that even if she, under the psychological pressure of a man in power over her, consented to this, it is rape. Even if she agreed to the act, that David is guilty and she is not. To put that even more clearly, it is when you understand the issue of power dynamics that you are now free to see that Bathsheba is purely a victim, even if she accepted David's advances. The problem with that, which I hope is very, very clear, is that it literally violates everything you just heard from biblical law. It just explains it away in the blink of an eye. You have to see Bathsheba as a victim, even if she agreed to it. So the question becomes, has God truly said? Has God truly said that a victim must cry out? Has God truly said these things must be established on the basis of two or three witnesses? Beloved, has God truly said? These things play out. They don't happen in a vacuum. This is not just theology from the ivory tower. It plays out in our culture today at large, and you're seeing it all around you. Where do you think the idea of presumption of innocence comes from? You're innocent until proven guilty. It's all based on biblical law. But if you apply the issue of power dynamics, you're automatically guilty. Or you're automatically innocent. Facts don't matter. You can now make all sorts of accusations that are no longer subject to the truth. And we saw that play out, didn't we, with the riots. It literally didn't matter what evidence came forth. People either saw Jacob Blake as an innocent man or a man who attacked the police. The facts didn't matter at the end of the day for some. But that's the lens our culture and many within the church are approaching things from. In the end, the Bible simply speaks to these realities, and it speaks to them quite clearly. And the Bible is either the authority that we will go to or we will not. That has massive, massive implications because the authority of the Scriptures actually has to mean something. If you think it stops here, it really doesn't. If the Bible's not the authority to speak to this issue, what's to say that the Bible would be the authority to speak to really anything else? Does it speak to how you relate together as husband and wife? Does it speak to how you raise your children? Does it speak to how you manage your household and your finances and everything else? Is there a bucket in which the Christian life applies, or does Christ have mastery over it all through the very word of God that he has given us? If the Bible is not the ultimate authority on all things, you inevitably become the authority and you place yourself over God. That was at the heart of the Reformation. The question was, did the church hold authority or did the Bible? And the stakes are really no different today in many of these instances. Even though the battle might be different, it might be a different topic, at the heart of it is what holds authority. Right? Is it the issue of power dynamics? Do we see the scriptures through this lens? Or does scripture inform how we look at things like power? For those that make the argument that David raped Bathsheba, the ultimate authority is this lens of power dynamics. It is the field of popular psychology. It is, as many have coined it, intersectionality and cultural Marxism. Now, if you don't know what those terms mean, that's okay. All it is is simply speaking to this idea of power in the fields of sex, gender, race, money, and everything and every bit of what you've seen play out in the culture war today. Everything is aligned under intersections of oppression, and everything becomes a helpful, quote-unquote, analytical tool. Does it not? But these ideas have consequences. All of these people will admit this when they say that you now have to approach the rest of Scripture this way if you're going to affirm it. You have to approach the Scripture through the lens of powerhood and victimhood. 
That's their point. That's literally what they're asking you to do if you affirm it. This is a method you must now use to study and understand the Bible. It's your hermeneutic, in other words. And this leads me to my next point, which is that words and hermeneutics, or how you study and understand the Bible, actually matters. Again, where this comes to bear in the story of David and Bathsheba is with certain words and drawing out the meaning of the parable that we saw. Right? If you recall from the argument that Piper made in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, he says that David seizes her by force and he rapes her. He says the word take actually implies that he kidnapped her, that the, he sent armed men to do that, even though the text says messengers, and that he forced himself upon her, even though the text says he lay with her. The problem is that none of these words actually mean what he says they mean. The word for take just means that. It means to take something that doesn't belong to you. And it doesn't imply by force. You can see, even in 2 Samuel 11, that the context refers to it being Uriah's wife. Right? David is taking a woman who is not his wife and is not his to take and then laying with her. All of David's messengers are like, hey, dude, look, is this not the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What are you doing? And secondly, he's, Piper says even the messengers that David sent are armed guards. But the reality is that they're just messengers. The word doesn't even mean armed guard. And based on the fact that all the men were already at war within Israel, and that messengers in this society would have been boys, that is the very likely understanding of it. There's nothing that insinuates, in other words, that he kidnapped her or that he used force to coerce her. The word take still doesn't mean kidnap or to seize somebody against their will. So even if it was armed guards, that's not what the narrative says. Third, the use of the word lay with, or the words rather, is an incredibly benign term. All it means is what you've seen all throughout the Old Testament, where so-and-so lay with so-and-so and they begat so-and-so. It means that they had intercourse. That's it. It doesn't mean force. It doesn't mean rape. It doesn't mean anything that many want to actually make it mean. If you remember earlier, I said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the divinely inspired word of God, the scriptures use a term for this. That has to mean something. What's also failed to be mentioned in many of these arguments is that the text also just tells us in 2 Samuel 11, verse 4, that Bathsheba also came to David. That after they finished doing the deed, she cleansed herself of her impurity, meaning that she obeyed the law's requirements after having sex, that she would clean herself, and then she simply returned home. Let me just ask you, does that sound like somebody who's been kidnapped against their will? In other words... The text just tells us she did precisely what the law says is worthy of her own death, just as David did, right? She did not cry out. There's no hint that he, he, she was forced, that she felt, quote-unquote, psychological pressure. She did not tell anybody that she was raped. She cleansed herself. She went home, and then she sent word back to him saying that she was pregnant. Do you see what I'm getting at when I say words matter? They matter. They, they mean a great deal. We have to be right about this. And what I mean is not that I have to be right or that you have to be right. What we have to be able to do is simply look at the text and say, what does it say? What is an ordinary series of words in the Hebrew suddenly changes meaning in order to fit this. But if you look at it through the lens of power dynamics, it all makes sense. Take becomes kidnapping, messengers becomes an armed guard, lay with Bathsheba becomes raped Bathsheba. And if you disagree, you are the one who handles the scriptures or improperly and sloppily. You are the one who perpetuates abuse. But what does that say of actual, actual victims of genuine abuse? That's, that's the sad part here, guys. Actual victims are just sharped right off to the side. But understand that this accusation that you handle Scripture improperly or sloppily, it plays out in every other controversy in our day. Think of even the debate over modesty. Just think about that for a second. Anytime you say Scripture places responsibility on both the man who lusts and the provocative woman, literally all hell breaks loose. 
This is the reason why. Words become something different. They mean something else. It all goes back to terminology, but it also goes back through the lens of power dynamics and victimhood. In other words, certain people have influence and power over another group of people, and because of that, the woman is automatically not guilty. Men are automatically seen as higher on this scale, so to speak, and so all the responsibility gets thrust upon them, even though the book of Proverbs speaks incredibly candidly about the woman who is provocative. It also speaks about the man who the scriptures simply call stupid as the man who lusts after her. In other words, sin is an equal opportunity offender. It doesn't really matter what our culture defines these things as. What it matters is how does God define sin? It hits everybody. Now, we're going to touch on that more shortly, but I want to draw your attention back to the parable for a second. So go again to chapter 12, 2 Samuel. Now, Piper used this parable to argue that the prophet Nathan also implies that David raped her, but he did so in a very creative way, right? In the parable, it's very clear. David is the rich man. Uriah is the poor man. Bathsheba is the little lamb. And Piper made the argument that we can conclude from this story that when the rich man took the lamb and he offered it up for a meal, that this is a one-to-one comparison to mean that Bathsheba was raped and that through the word slaughter, that she was also raped. That's what he's saying it means. Again, the word take does all the heavy lifting, just like it did before, but notice how he makes a larger leap here to say that in the slaughter of the lamb, meaning the killing of the lamb, it now means the word rape. The problem with this is that you can read all sorts of different meanings into the text here if this is how you're going to apply your hermeneutic, or rather how you understand the scripture. In the parable, the traveler also ate of the lamb. Well, who's the traveler? Right, what, do we, what do we make of that? What do we do with that man? What about the fact that the poor man in this, in this parable isn't said to be killed? Right, Uriah was killed, wasn't he? What if we can take the slaughter or the word slaughter to mean something different? What if we can apply it to speak of something very, very different than even rape or intercourse? My point here is we can get really, really creative and insert all sorts of different meanings into the text But a parable is not designed to teach whatever we think it should teach. It's designed to draw out a simple point through the use of a story, and that story actually has a God-given meaning to it. These things actually play out in rather critical ways. It matters, guys. In this case, the parable is used to demonstrate to David, look, you sinned in a massive, massive way, and you don't even get it yet. Right? Nathan comes before him and he shows him this story, and David says, Kill the man. Right? He should make restitution, but David just says, Kill the man. And Nathan says, You are the man. And then all, all fell apart for David. That's when he finally saw his sin. Nathan just asks him, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And David had no recourse but to agree. In every aspect, the parable is not focused on Bathsheba. It's not focused on Uriah. It's focused on David. And the reason for this is it's actually setting up an incredible story here. The whole section just foreshadows what's going to be the future of the kingdom. There's insurrection that happens. There's division that happens between the two kingdoms. Even David's own household is fighting amongst each other for the rest of his life, and it's all due to his sin. He made a massive, massive mistake. But notice what Nathan also just simply explicitly says in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. That's a consequence, right? Why? Because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. What's missing? There's no accusation of rape. There's a charge of adultery. There's a charge of theft. There's a charge of rebellion and even hatred of God. But there's absolutely nothing that says he raped her. When we take the text at what it says at 
face value, I mean, we are forced, and I do mean literally forced, to conclude that there's nothing that hints at that. The only way you can arrive at that conclusion is to take this concept of power dynamics, to take the concept of victimhood, and to place them as a grid over the text. In other words, you must see it through that in order to reach that conclusion. But to do that, you have to get creative and change the meaning of words and the meaning of the parable. You have to make it fit that conclusion. To put it quite simply, you have to make the text say something it doesn't actually say. That's the very definition of what's called eisegesis, guys. You're reading into the text what is not there. You have to read between the lines to understand what the Bible really says. Now, for those of you who are in the continuity and discontinuity class, perhaps you're starting to see why this is such a big deal. You can't just read the text and understand it. You have to use something else in order to understand what the meaning is by God for you to walk away with it and be able to now apply it meaningfully in your life. But the application of this truth is actually quite dangerous. It leads to certain consequences. And that's what I want to spend the rest of my time dealing with today. Now, the first consequence is very simple. The reality of sin actually is undermined through this. The reality of sin is undermined. A sin, as it is defined in Scripture, is always between God and man. It is always vertical rather than horizontal. That doesn't mean that you and I can't sin against one another, but ultimately what it means is that our sin is primarily and always seen before the face of God. Because we have violated his standard, we have now violated another. It's only called sin because it is a violation of God's commands. Now, in Psalm 51, if you remember, I said David used three terms. He talked about being openly and flagrantly rebellious against his God. He talked about going his own way rather than God's way. And then he talked about missing the mark of God's perfect holiness. All of these different things, he said, make up who we are as people and therefore sinners. All of these things describe David's sin in light of who God is and what God has said in his word. Again, it's before the face of God. I also spoke to the idea that genuine confession means that we actually must come to agreement with God. This is our standard, always, God himself and God's word. The standard is not the prevailing cultural dogma that is in our day. It's not these analytical and psychological frameworks. It's not if somebody feels we have sinned against them. The standard is bound up in the authority of the divinely inspired scriptures. It's bound up underneath what God has said. When we change this, when we define sin by things that run contrary to the word, by default, we become slaves to whatever it is that we think is right in our own eyes. Hear that. When you change the definition of sin, when you say something is not sin that the scriptures say is sin, or even when you say something is sin that the scriptures don't say is sin, you automatically become a slave to that. Beloved, that is sin. That's exactly what David confessed of in Psalm 51, of going his own way, of rejecting the law of God and making up his own. But this also has incredible consequences to how we understand this story, but also how we understand several other passages of Scripture. Bathsheba is purely a victim. She's purely a victim. The woman at the well is purely a victim. Mary Magdalene is purely a victim. And all of them are victims of power dynamics. They're not victims of their own foolish and sinful choices, They're victims of institutional power. But Scripture does not paint them as victims, and it doesn't paint you and I as victims. Scripture paints every one of us as sinners who have violated the will of God, and that doesn't change simply because we find ourselves at, quote-unquote, intersections of oppression. The perversion of reading Scripture through this lens of power dynamics is that all of these things make people not guilty, and therefore in no need of a savior. 
That's the implication of this. That's why this matters so much. Right? They're seen purely as victims of a patriarchal society that forced them into these circumstances, and they made no choice to get there. Think of that in light of things like the Me Too movement. Think of that in light of things like Believe All Women. There are genuine victims. But these are the ones that I believe are actually under assault in these movements. There are women, there are even men who have been preyed upon and abused in ways that should never, ever have happened. And the judgment of God will rest upon the abuser if they fail to repent and trust in Christ. But when we redefine words and when we redefine parables or when we say that even if a woman agreed to sin, that it is not sin because of the pressures on her, What you inevitably do is minimize and downplay or outright twist the scriptures with what they say is sin. And then how do you have a savior? Let me be perfectly blunt. If you're buying into these systems, understand they run contrary to the word of God. But the reason that you do that is that you don't yet see sin as God sees sin. You don't see it as this totally destructive reality that all the world is fallen and broken under the weight of. You don't see it as something that you need to be delivered from, that every aspect of your being is tainted by this reality, that you are, as the scriptures say, completely sown in sin and therefore bent towards destruction and willful rebellion and waywardness and rejection of God. But if you get this wrong, you don't just get sin wrong. You get the gospel wrong. Let me put it this way. Scripture defines how we are to understand things like rape. It defines how we are understand things like sexual perversion. The narrative gives us every indication to say that Bathsheba was not raped. That's what the scriptures just say at face value. But if we want to take things and foist it upon the text, we can ultimately arrive at a different conclusion. We can say that even if she agreed to the act, she is not guilty of sin. But again, if that's true, how can she be forgiven? That's an incredibly important question. Now, if we take that same understanding and apply it to women today who have made conscious, deliberate choices, even if they were in a position that was not favorable, right? Even if somebody abused their power against them, but they still made a choice. If we say that's not sin because of quote-unquote psychological pressure, how will they be forgiven? When you make someone out to be a victim, who scripture says is not a victim, what happens is a perversion of the grace of God. That's legitimately what happens. Christ did not come to save victims. Christ came to save sinners. And every last one of you in this room is a sinner. That's why this is so dangerous. Do you see that? Do you, do you really see that? That what's at stake at this all, at the base level of it, <clears throat> excuse me, is the gospel. Once you go down the road of victimhood, who's to say where it stops? And who's to say what is an abuse of scripture? If you're the authority at the end of the day, you can define and make things say what you want them to say rather than simply accepting what the word says at face value and submitting to that. But it's dangerous. If you do that, you deny the very sin that God promises to solve through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's my final point today, really, ultimately, is that the beauty of the gospel is distorted when we approach the scriptures this way. That's why this is so important. If we fail to accurately understand our sin before God, we will never understand the fullness of God's grace. Hear that. If we fail to understand our sin, we will never understand the fullness of grace through Jesus Christ. When David saw his sin for what it was, he saw it as rebellion. 
He saw it as a hatred of God and his law, and he confessed it. And what actually happens in the text is utterly amazing. Nathan tells David, the Lord has taken away your sin. Utterly removed it, taken it completely away. There's consequences for David, but he's not condemned. He would find mercy, he would find grace, and he would find forgiveness. And though the rest of his life would be filled with much anguish as the consequences played out, he had joy. Well, the reason he had joy is because he had salvation. To put it simply, he was free. He was freed from the guilt of what he did. He was freed from the facade of trying to live a double life, but he was ultimately free from the wrath of God. And he had joy. He had joy in his salvation. That's incredible. Here's a man who violated the will or the law of God in every intentional way that he could at that point. And yet the Lord looked at him through the prophet Nathan and said, your sins have been taken away. When you hold to a gospel that sees everything through the lens of power dynamics, though, what's conspicuously missing is grace. You're the oppressor in their worldview. You will always have to work harder and harder to please them and to meet their criteria. You will always be guilty. But the gospel promises that that no matter how ugly your sin is, it is forgiven through the grace of Jesus Christ if you confess that he is both Lord and Savior. That forgiveness will never be dangled over your head. You can be the most vile of sinners, and yet if you approach the Lord, you confess your sin, he will take your sins away. Past, present, future, all of it is covered by the blood of the Lamb. This is why the good news is such good news. If you're like I am, you've, you've just made bad choices at some point in life, and perhaps even today. You've been the person who both abused your power, but you've also been the person in a place of weakness where instead of choosing the right and righteous way, you chose the sinful way. You can look at that and you can say, I'm a victim. I was forced. And your sin can hang over you. Or you can agree with God that you are not a victim. Your sin is sin. And you find complete and total forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. Tell me, what's the better way? When we come to see that this battle over words is ultimately a battle over sin, it's a battle over the gospel, all of this becomes incredibly critical. So what I want to do is simply close with what the gospel actually is. The gospel is that you, like me, are a sinner. You have sinned against a holy God. You have been doing it your whole life. You are guilty, and the punishment is eternal death, hell. But the Son of God came in the form of a man, and he lived a perfect life of obedience to the will of the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. And on that cross, he took your sin, and he paid the full penalty that you deserved. He stood in your place. He took your wrath, and on the third day, he rose again, securing your life in him. You will have eternal life through him. If your hope is in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, you get grace and forgiveness. Like Nathan said to David, your sins are taken away. You are completely and utterly forgiven, and one great day you will see him face to face, and your joy, that is the joy in God's salvation, shall be made complete. That's at the heart of everything that matters, beloved. That's at the heart of what I want to leave you with today. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us grace through Christ. We thank you that you have given us a clear and authoritative word bound up in your scriptures that these things are not confusing, that ultimately we can simply approach your Bible and your scriptures and see them for what they say. We thank you ultimately that there's no confusion over the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray for those here that do not know you, that you would indeed by your spirit convict them of their sins. Allow them to see that they have violated your holy will, that they stand as an enemy of God, 
but that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, they can be utterly forgiven. I pray that we would be a people who are bold about this gospel, that we are bold about the nature and the work of Jesus Christ, that we would simply proclaim this good news to the city that we live in and to our coworkers and families and friends, that we would highlight the reality of what it means to be a Christian, but ultimately what it means to be one who subjects ourselves under your will and your word for the glory and fame of your name. Pray that as everyone goes home today, you would bless them mightily. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.